my name is Eric, and I welcome you to our Black Gay Diaspora podcast, where we, as LGBTQ plus citizens, come together to inspire and educate each other on who we are and our respective countries and professions. Through topics and guest interviews, our Black Gay Diaspora podcast celebrates individuals making a difference. Loving who we love is not a choice. Being who we're meant to be can be. We are here. You are welcome. We are community. Hello, and welcome to another great episode of Our Black Gay Diaspora Podcast. I'm your host, Eric. And today I am joined by Antoine Craigwell, president and CEO of DBGM Inc., an organization which is, quote, dedicated to recognizing, articulating, and highlighting LGBTQIA plus Black and people of color in the African diaspora and the mental health needs, end quote. And this marks their 10-year anniversary. A graduate of Bernard Baruch College of the City University of New York, Antoine is a journalist who's written for several U.S. national publications. He's also the producer of the 2012 documentary, You Are Not Alone, which shines a spotlight on the psychological distress that many Black gay men face. In 2008, Antoine earned awards from the New York Association of Black Journalists, and this past June 2023, Mental Health America presented him with the Clifford W. Beers Award, an honor presented annually to an individual who best exemplifies the example set by MHA founder Clifford W. Beers to, quote, improve conditions for and attitudes toward people living with mental health conditions, end quote. There is so much more I can say in this introduction, but I think it's best if you hear it from Mr. Craigwell. And so without further ado, greetings and welcome. How are you? Thank you very much, Eric, for that brief introduction. And I, sometimes I tell people that when they read my bio, I think it's all made up. <laughs> it may be false news, but I know that a whole lot of it is true because I wrote the damn thing. But I can't believe sometimes when I hear my own self read about that way, it kind of like scares me. Is that me they're talking about? So yes, thank you very much for introducing me and for welcoming me to be part of our Black Gay Diaspora podcast. And, you know, the, the amount of work that you are doing as well to highlight Black gay men in the diaspora. And, and I'm thinking those might be our community members, particularly who live along the equator and in the global south which I argue is a majority of LGBT and people of color globally. It's interesting that you say below the equator, because as you know, when we had our introduction last week by phone, I'm currently in Cape Town, South Africa. So I'm definitely grateful to be here and learning more as I stay here for these next three months about the communities here on the continent. How has your week been so far? It hasn't been too hectic as yet. I'm just recovering from traveling. So a couple of us went to do a site visit over the weekend, the past weekend for a location for our ancestral institute that we are hosting this year. I can talk a little bit more about the ancestral institute. I'm just getting back on Monday evening and then on Tuesday early in the morning, I had to be up because I work at a poll station as a poll clerk. So we had primary elections here in New York State. So I was working at a poll station. I had to be there at a poll station at five o'clock in the morning. I didn't leave until about 9.30 Tuesday night. So yesterday was like trying to rest and catch up. 
today I'm now kind of like really beginning to get back into the groove of things. Wow. <laughs> well, first of all, just hearing your week so far, I'm, I haven't had such a uh, colorful or as busy week. So it's amazing. But you wanted to share about the ancestral location that you mentioned earlier. Right. Well, I know that's something that we might have talked about a little earlier. And it's one of the things that DBGM, the organization, launched last year. It's called an Ancestral Institute. And the idea behind the Ancestral Institute, which I, for me, seems a little unbelievable that really and truly this may, may or may not have been done or somebody else is not already doing it. The Ancestral Institute is intended to be very simply an opportunity to reconnect with our ancestral healing rites and practices, identify contemporary psychological constructs, meld the two things together, and create a unique form of mental health care for Black and people of color. We've arrived at this quite by accident, in a sense, because we're like, it's the next logical step. So a lot of the work that we are doing already in mental health care, mental health awareness for Black and people of color. Why is it that there are things in us, intrinsic in our DNA, that was passed on to us from generations that we carry within us that we use to help ourselves and help others? And how can we tap and reconnect back to those? There is the concept that is everybody in the grandmother is talking about is about reconnecting with your past and, and it's about intergenerational trauma and transgenerational trauma. Yes, we acknowledge that there are traumas, but here's the thing. What other good or beneficial things were in our ancestors that were passed on to us that we have ignored or decided not to incorporate into our daily lives. And I use the example very simply for somebody who cooks. You know, you got a sense that there is the food needs something, a little bit something more. And so you reach your hand into a jar and you take out that ingredient. For us Black and people of color, we don't use a measuring spoon that says one half of a teaspoon or one quarter of a tea. We don't, we don't use that measure. We just dip in with our fingers and we start to sprinkle. Let's stop for a minute and ask ourselves, how did we know what it is that the food needed, first of all? Second, how do we know how much to sprinkle? And third, how do we know when the food that we're cooking has got enough of this new ingredient? And I argue and suggest to people that this is something that may have been written in your DNA. This is something that you are already part of who you are and instinctively you reconnect with it. Your DNA reminds you, we've been here before. And so the Ancestral Institute, again, as I'm saying, is an opportunity to reconnect with ancestral healing rites and practices. And I give you another example of how Western, European, and American psychology has misunderstood and continues to misdiagnose Black people. In a Boston Globe article, there was a, a story report talking about a therapist, presumably white therapist, who encounters a 20-year-old Black man. 
with a number of symptoms. They do an evaluation. The therapist goes to her supervisor and says, I am likely to diagnose him as paranoid schizophrenia and to prescribe treatment for him. Okay. The psychiatrist asked, is the young man from Nigeria? The therapist says, yes. How do you know? The psychiatrist says, because what he's experiencing is a Yoruba word phrase called Odeori. Uh Odeori among the Yoruba manifests as an anxiety attack because the young man came in claiming that he felt like insects were crawling all over his skin. And, you know, the psychiatrist said, if I had not spent some time in Nigeria and begun to understand some of their own cultural ways, I might have also misdiagnosed this 20-year-old with paranoid schizophrenia and prescribed medication for him for schizophrenia, when in fact he was dealing with anxiety which is a much lesser and much less severe diagnosis than paranoid schizophrenia. That was a clear example of how easily black and people of color are misdiagnosed, are not even understood in their diagnosis because we argue from the perspective of the Ancestral Institute that mental health care was never intended for black and people of color communities. We, black and people, were often used as the ones for experiments to create evaluations and diagnoses, diagnoses for white people. Okay. But there was never, we were never really seen as human. We were never really seen as, as people who feel pain. So how could we then have mental health issues when, in fact, our ancestors refined over millennia how to take care of themselves, how to take care of each other in their communities? Because we have to remember that as long as humans have walked the face of the earth, we've always struggled with mental illness. We've always had to deal with and find ways to take care of each other. So the Institute, I know you're based out of New York City. Is it in New York State or New York City? The Institute is based out here in New York City, where I am. But the Institute attracts people from around the world. So some of the work that we are doing in the Institute is divided into at least three different components. One is connecting with ancestral healing rites and practices and learning from what was done and how it can be adapted or included for today. The other component is a research component, and there's a theme of researchers that are based in South Africa, at the University of South Africa, at Northwestern University, and I think at Stellenbach University, who are working and collaborating with other psychology researchers throughout the continent to look at the gaps in literature. Where are there opportunities that the literature does not talk about mental illness from an indigenous African perspective? What does that look like? And the third component of the Institute is building a curriculum that we can teach high school and college students and university students and also clinicians in training so that a clinician at some point in time in their therapy, particularly a black client, can, for example, say, the next time you're coming to therapy, bring your drums and meet me at this drum circle and our therapy for today will be drumming. 
instinctive, we know inherently that drumming, the sound, the sound reverberating through our bodies, the sound coursing through our, uh, our cells, our right all the way down to the mitochondria in our cell structure, we know that the sound of the drums has a healing property to it. Or a therapist might say for your therapy next week, meet me in such and such a park and we will just sit among the trees and meditate. Be in the silence and feel the open air, the environment, the trees, just to be there in nature. Because we also know that nature has a therapeutic effect on us because we are also, as humans, part of nature. Right, very much so. You shine a spotlight on something that I've become more aware of. You know, I've spent most of the last three years outside of the U.S. between Sweden and the U.K. And one of the things coming from the States for me that I'm, you know, it's not backed up by science or research, but I believe the reason why that Europeans or people of European descent are more self-aware is because they know their histories. They know their, their cultures, their unique cultures, depending on where they come from. And so, yeah, you talking about that makes sense to me. But also realize, too, that with the enslavement, that there was a systematic cultural removal. And I think it might have been W.E. Du Bois or Marcus Garvey or even Malcolm X who might have said that if you do not know your culture, you do not know your history, you are lost. Because then anybody can come and tell you anything and you will believe it because you do not know your culture, you do not know your history. And the white community, through the colonialists and enslavement, systematically removed black culture from among them. Our language, our food, our music, our dancing, our drumming, our, our belief systems, our worshipping, our sense of community, our sense of family our sense of belonging, our very identities have been transformed. Yeah, wow. Your background, I know part of it is, is journalism, you're a writer, but when did you become interested in, in mental health and connecting that to the Black queer community, the Black community in general? I often joke and tell people that I grew up in a mental asylum. My mother was a nurse in a mental hospital in Guyana, where I'm from. And as a child, she would take me to the hospital with her, you know, you know, when she go to work, she will take me with her. It was those occasions when she didn't have anybody to look after me, any child care. And she would leave me in the company of some of her friends in the kitchen. They would take care of me. They would make sure I eat. I would lie down on a bench and I would sleep. But I also had the run of the entire hospital. And when I tell you run, I mean literally run. Mm. I, as a child, I ran everywhere. I never walked anywhere. I always, I'm always running. And even today, I don't run, but I walk very, very quickly. I walk very fast. My journey to mental health today, it's been an interesting line, if I can trace it all the way back to childhood and, you know, growing up in that mental asylum with my mother as a nurse. Because later on in life, I became a Jesuit. And as part of my Jesuit training, after I'd taken my first vows, I used to provide spiritual direction. And there were elements of spiritual direction that I've come to see as a form of psychological counseling. And then over the years, 
I, you know, meandered through life, did a number of different things after that, until I came to the point where I thought about taking my life back in 1999 and stood on the platform, the subway platform at 34th Street Station, and was on the very edge as the subway was coming full speed into the into the station and was about to propel myself forward. I stopped and I thought about my mother. We had just buried one of my sisters. And I thought to myself, I cannot visit on her another tragedy, another death. So I stepped back from the edge. And realizing that it was a, a lifetime of lots of issues that have just come to the fore, that had all risen to the top, that propelled me or was a catalyst for me to stand on the edge of that platform, that I realized that there really was not very much in the way of mental health care for Black people or for anybody like me. Coming on down 2007, 2008, 2009, I was hearing stories from other Black gay men and recognizing that many were stuck in a kind of a rut and it was a cycle, rinse and repeat. Go to parties, drink, dance, go home with somebody, have sex, wake up next morning, okay, continue with life. And so it was rinse and repeat. This, this was the cycle. And I recognized after also listening that many were struggling with mental health you know, issues. Many were dealing with significant amounts of stress and anxiety, including depression. But there was a lot of shame there was a lot of stigma surrounding it. And so I started doing community discussion fora around the country, just raising the awareness and talking about depression and suicide in black gay men. I thought that, you know, I needed to write a book about black gay men and mental health. And so I put together a book proposal. I spent about three months putting together a book proposal and was promptly told by a white publisher a white gay publisher, that nobody's going to be interested in reading that. So I stepped back and I said, you know what? More Americans look at movies and televisions and moving images than they read. I interviewed about 40 black gay men from the U.S., the Caribbean, and Africa. And so I produced a documentary, You Are Not Alone, in which black gay men talked about at least six different themes which either singly or in combination with others or together, all six, contributed to their mental health destabilization, including suicidal ideation and attempts. We looked at the six things that came up. Acceptance of self, the, the role of the church influencing uh, homophobia, HIV status, and cyberbullying sexual abuse and trauma. And then the sixth item that comes up is growing old as a black gay man. What does it mean for you in a youth-focused environment, a youth-focused culture and society to be a black gay man? But then after the film was produced and published in 2012, I launched the organization DBGM in 2013. And as you said at the beginning, celebrates 10 years this year. And then 
Later on, the organization, DBGM, decided to launch the In My Mind Conference, which focuses on mental health for LGBTQ plus people of color, Black and people of color globally. And this year, we're focusing on LGBT people of color, Black and people of color with disabilities. So what changes have you seen in the last 10 years within our own communities or within Black queer communities? Are there more of us that are seeking mental health attention? There still exists a dearth in the number of Black therapists nationally in the U.S. And the number of therapists who may accept insurance or Medicare or Medicaid are actually even fewer. But there is some anecdotal suggestions that Black people are beginning to go and seek therapy. More and more Black people are going into therapy. Is religion still something that keeps people from seeking mental health because of the whole thing of, oh, let's just go pray about it? It is entrenched in us. It's been drilled into us. It's become part of our psyche for 400 years. What else is there other than Christianity? How many of us still think of our ancestors' beliefs and religious practices as evil, as demonic? I asked a question the other day when I was on a forum with Guyanese, and I said, how many people, how many Guyanese still think of Obia, which is a kind of a voodoo from West Africa? How many Guyanese still think of Obia as demonic, as evil? Have you considered that, in fact, the white colonialists, the British, the Dutch, the French, have told you that your ancestral beliefs and cultures were evil so that they can put in you Christianity? And Christianity has now told you that what your ancestors have been practicing for millennia is demonic? I was invited in May in Stockholm to a talk at an ethnographic museum that was about just diversity and, and how so much of African art was stolen. Most of it, I think, is, is in European museums, but not really being displayed. But one of the things that came up was religious artifacts, things that are connected to spirituality and religion and indigenous cultures in Africa, South America, North America. Even if they are displayed, the way they're lit are different. It's usually darker. It's usually presented in a way that feels more mysterious or more sinister. What you just shared just reinforces that. When they remove those sacred items from those communities, they literally remove the representations of their anthropomorphic gods, of their culture, of their belief systems. What did they bring and put back in their place? A crucifix. Look at Lumumba in Africa. He was killed because he protested. Look at Malcolm X. Look at Martin Luther. Look at Marcus Garvey. These are all black men in our communities who have been striving and fighting and protesting against white hegemony, white racism. And they were systematically removed because it's about preserving the white hegemony. You've done traveling internationally connected to talks about mental health and connecting with others. 
what are people doing in other places that you've been to in relation to, you know, mental health for the Black queer community, Black gay men? In many other places outside of the U.S., it is still illegal to be gay. You can still be punished by up to life imprisonment or even death. They just passed a new law in Uganda that literally reinforces an already existing law criminalizing and the death sentence for anyone who is gay. There is a law pending in Ghana to also provide draconian means for dealing with gay people. In Nigeria, it's already a law. Speaking with some of my Nigerian counterparts is that I've learned that really and truly on the ground, not much has really changed. There is still a lot of shame, there's still a lot of stigma against people who are LGBT, who are gay or lesbian or trans. There are still a lot of shame and stigma against people who may be dealing with mental illness. In 2021, we launched an LGBT People of Color Global South Summit to highlight the work of LGBT people of color in the global South, from the equator down. We started in Central and South America, the Caribbean, both English, French, and Dutch. And then we moved across to the African continent, West Africa, East Africa, Central Africa, South Africa, North Africa. Then we moved across to Asia, South Asia, and then Southeast Asia, and then the Pacific. And the idea of the LGBT People of Color Global South Summit was to highlight the remarkable work that LGBT people of color are doing in their respective communities. Because it is often that when we hear stories about LGBT in Global South countries, it's always about some tragedy. Somebody got murdered, somebody took their life. There are LGBT in the Global South in their respective communities who are doing incredible work, who are resilient, who are finding ways to be creative and innovative, but they don't get recognized. Nobody sees them. Nobody hears them. Well, I think that's why it's important that you've been so public about what you're doing, because I've heard this term in the last few years, you know, Black trauma porn. It's important to be aware of that, but I want to counterbalance that with our joys, with our successes you know, what, what yeah. you're doing, sharing a bit about some of your own personal struggles, but how you turn that around to not only help yourself, but to help others around you. In this, your podcast, I could be like a diva. How much is your audience? And where's your audience? And I, I could go through all of that and be like, no, I'm sorry. You don't have enough people, so I'm not going to do that. Just like you are trying to make a difference, just like you're trying to raise awareness, just like you're trying to do a reach, I can help you by my presence, by my voice, let me help you. You are trying to make a difference. Why shouldn't you be supported? Why shouldn't you be encouraged? And thank you. And just you saying that for me, a reminder to me that I have to stay focused on the purpose because I can get caught up myself because I am doing this and the numbers and all that. But I have to say, yeah, that's on some level helpful, but if I'm not focused on the main goal, then it's empty. Yeah, just the other day, I was at an event that I was supposed to speak at. There weren't as many people that the organizers expected. And I said to them, 
even if one person shows up, we are going to go ahead. Because that one person that came, came for a reason, and we need to respect that one person and provide for them. If we are just going to be about having a room full and hundreds of people, then we are missing the real purpose of why we are doing this and why we are here. That is something that I learned from back in my days as a Jesuit, when I would preach in churches. Sometimes there may be one or two people in the church congregation, and I will still go ahead with the service because those two people came for a reason, to get something from being there. And my job to provide a service is to provide for them. Thank you so much. I, I, you know, of course I'm listening, but I'm also absorbing. Yeah, I'm just thankful that you came on here to share. And, uh, you know, the same thing on this end, I'm going to share about you as much as I can, what you're doing and your work. And I know you have the upcoming conference in October. Looking forward to that. But do you want to share about that? Yeah, well, so like I said earlier, we've got the In My Mind conference this year is coming up on Thursday, October 12th. So we'll begin registrations maybe sometime in the next two weeks for the conference. I hope to be able to publish the conference program uh, next week with all of our speakers and presenters and breakouts. We will have that ready by next week that we will publish on the website. So the conference is on October 12th. It's from 9 a.m. to 5.30 p.m. And it's going to be at Hofstra University out in Long Island, Hempstead, Long Island. It's just a one-day conference, and this year it's focused on LGBTQ plus Black and people of color disability communities. So it's about Black and people of color LGBT who have or struggle or live with any disability. On October 27th to 29th, we'll be hosting the Ancestral Institute. We would likely be hosting it at Silver Bay YMCA, which is located in the Lake George region of upstate New York. And somebody who uh, may be presenting at the Institute mentioned to me that in October, at that time of the year, um, upstate New York is just beginning to change colors, the fall colors. So it is likely that over that weekend at the resort, it might be ablaze with the fall colors of reds and golds and oranges with all the trees changing colors. So it will be occurring at a time of seasonal change changing how we think about our mental health, how we think about engaging with our mental health, how we think about connecting with our ancestry for our mental health. So all of these things are coming together. Now, the Ancestral Institute event in October, will that also be both in person and online? We are going to be working that some aspects of it may be streamed on Zoom, so there's going to be a hybrid component. Some aspects, some other aspects may not. Okay. But there may be occasions on indoor with some of the workshops or some of the sessions that are happening indoor that we could possibly stream those. Do you have any final thoughts or insights? Maybe just to suggest that we encourage especially Black gay men or Black same-gender-loving men and you notice, Eric, that I choose not to use the word queer because the queer etymologically is derogatory and I do not feel that we should appropriate that and make that part of our identities. I would say black, same gender, loving men, 
or black gay men to learn to reconnect with your ancestry, learn to learn your story, learn where you come from. Because I think learning and knowing your history, knowing your story helps you to understand yourself a little better, helps you to understand your place in the world a little better and help you to understand how you can move forward and achieve the kind of healing that you require. Go back and do some introspection and thinking. And if necessary, find somebody to talk to professionally. You may be all that and much more, but only when you have reconnected with your story. So ask your mother, ask your great aunt, ask your grandmother, what can they tell you about the family story? What can they tell you about any secrets or things in the family that we no longer talk about. What is that story? The importance of history. Yeah. Thank you for that. Um, where can we engage with you online? So we have our website, the dbgm.org. So it's D is in David, B is in boy, G is in God, M is in man.org. Or there is in my mind conference.com. So in my mind conference is all one. Or there is the ancestralinstitute.org, which is ancestralinstitute, all one word, dot org. I'm on Facebook. DBGM is on Facebook. The Ancestral Institute is on Facebook. In My Mind Conference is on Facebook. We're also on Twitter and Instagram, so you can find us there. On Instagram, I have used for my identity on Instagram as one of the native, the indigenous spirits in Guyana called Masakura Man. Masakura Man is one of the indigenous spirits in Guyana among the indigenous communities. Well, again, thank you. And I look forward to this story being released and, and sharing it with this growing community. Well, thank you. Thank you for spending time with us. If you enjoyed this episode, please rate, comment, and subscribe. Share with your friends, too. You can also follow us on Instagram at Our Black Gay Diaspora and on Twitter at BLK Gay Diaspora. Until next time.